And, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if you noticed with your dad, it was nothing, everything was kind of subtle. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, things are changing. It just goes to a next phase. And I remember them coming in and checking his respiration and saying, okay, it's very low. It was like in the seventies. When it gets this point, it's usually fairly soon. Okay, so now you go through this phase where you know he's dying, but now, okay, now he's really dying. Before it was like, okay, it's gonna happen. I've got a few more days to not go into panic mode. Now it's imminent. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity, and maybe also the realization that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome back to Shapes of Grief. I am joined today by Dina Goldstein, all the way from Arizona. Dina, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. I thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you this morning and actually evening for you. Um, Dina has just published a lovely book, OK Little Bird, which documents the father-daughter relationship. Um, Dina, your father died coming up to two years now. Yes. And this is timely for me because I've just uh, two days ago marked my father's one year anniversary. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a common theme here, father-daughter relationships and what it's like for daughters to lose a father. So Dina, take us back to 2020. Um, your father died during the pandemic. What happened? Yeah, I. Uh, what's interesting is he did not die from COVID. Uh, he had some other uh, critical health issues. Um, <clears throat> and because of the nursing care that he required, we had to put him in a group home, uh, which was close to our home, my mother and our family. And we were able to go uh, the first three, four weeks. And then the world closed down, as you know, and we could not get to him. And I thought to myself, it's bad enough. I'm about to lose my father. Now, the little time he has left, I can't even get to him. So uh, we were lucky that there was staff that was willing to hold up a cell phone. You know, technology is hard enough for anybody, let alone somebody that's dealing with cognitive decline due to health issues and things like that. So we were able to drop off food. Um, I would mail cards. Uh, and then toward the end, when I was finally able to see him, we were very lucky. He had a patio, a private entrance. Um, it didn't, it wasn't meant to be private. It was just, he was off of a patio. So they called me and they said, you can visit your father. And I just thought I was going to just fall over from joy. So um, I knew my dad didn't really have much of an appetite, but I made his favorite peanut butter sandwich and chips and everything. And didn't want to come empty handed, never come empty handed, always bring food, I was taught. So I was instructed to give the food to the nurse and walk my way around to the patio. And I went to the patio um, and I hear this rustling around. They're like, Mark, your daughter's here. Do you, do you want to see her? And I hear mumbling and I thought, oh no. And I'm just waiting and waiting. She said, wait a minute, Dina, he wants to come see you. 
my father was not able to get out of his bed for a, a while. So the fact that he would get himself up and use whatever strength he had to come see me broke my heart and made me feel elated all in the same moment. It was, it was awful and amazing. And he came, they wheeled him and we had, if we had four minutes, it was all he could muster. And without a spoiler alert, it was at that moment that he called me little bird and he had never called me that his entire life. Something happened at that moment, Liz. I, I knew it. I felt it. It, it said so much and so little. And uh, a few days after that, uh, I was sitting by his bedside. Hospice had told us that he had only a few days and I had some thoughts. I was just by myself looking at him, just trying to take in every moment like we all do when we have those few seconds. And I started writing and I, literally a year and a half later, I lifted my head up. I mean, it just came pouring out. There was so much to tell. And that's how Little Bird was born, took flight, if you will. So back to those four minutes when he got himself out of bed, you said so much happened. What happened in those four minutes where he came out the patio door to you, Dina? Uh, you know, I couldn't say, how are you doing? Because for, that might've frustrated him. We knew how he was doing. So I knew that I had a few moments where physically he was only, I mean, he could barely keep his head up enough to look at me. Um, I let him know that I loved him and I was ecstatic that I could see him finally, that I missed him so much. And I was sorry that he was not feeling well. I tried to be in the moment where he was because to take you back a little bit further before he ended up in the group home, he had dealt with so many severe diagnoses. I mean, one of them, the doctor gave him six weeks. He had a rare form of cancer, which he beat. I wanted to get him a superhero cape because I couldn't believe it, believe it. But I remember that day sitting on the couch with him and he got the diagnosis and it was just he and I, and I had always been able to make him laugh. There was never a moment of uncomfortable silence between us. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to say something. So I looked at him and I said, everything will be okay, dad. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Dina, things are not going to be okay. You can't just tell somebody they're going to be okay. If you want to let me know you're going to support me, then say, you know what, I'm here for you, dad, whatever you need. And that was a really defining moment. So fast forward, lesson learned, I thought, okay, I really need to go to this dark place with them. As my mom would put it, you really need to be with somebody. And I just said, I'm so sorry that you're hurting. I, I wish there was some way I could take your pain away. I love you. I miss you. Uh, you know, my daughter says, hello, everybody. He asked about her. He asked about my husband. He asked about work. And then <laughs> He kind of pointed to his environment a little bit to things outside because he wasn't really at the door much. And then he, that was it. You could see the steam completely run out. Well, what and wisdom just, in him though, when he said, you know, don't give me these platitudes. Yes. And don't try to fix this and don't try and make that better, that make this better because that's just going to isolate him and alienate him. He's like, you rock up where I am, which is in the pit. Yes. Of, of facing this, this disease. Absolutely. I mean, able to yeah, say you, to it's so true because people have these platitudes. They don't know what to say. Yes, it's uncomfortable. The platitudes are actually more for yourself. When I said it's going to be okay, I, I was making, trying to make it okay for myself because it was like ice water running through my veins multiple times over as he beat these, you know, lung cancer and these awful things. And this is what we do 
to comfort our loved ones, we actually, in our attempt to comfort them, we comfort ourselves. And, and frankly, I didn't think it was all that comforting. It was just an awful moment. And so I knew when I saw him, I had a few, minute, few minutes to really connect with him. So yes, we were just there together, sitting, acknowledging what we both knew was happening. Hmm. I didn't know if I was going to see him again after that. I, I, I was able to, and I was actually with him when he passed. When you were with your father, did you ever acknowledge that he was dying with him? Um, I had one experience. Um, it, it's a brilliant question. I, it never came out overtly. It's sort of like the elephant in the room. Everybody knew it was happening, but nobody really said anything. And one day I was over, I was very involved in the process with home care and things like that. Um, I was over there and hospice came over, the social worker. And I said, I wanted to be respectful of my father's privacy. I said, I'll go ahead and go. My mother said, no, stay. So there we were, my mother, my father, myself, and the hospice social worker. And the first thing they do is they may, it's like facing a train, an oncoming train. <clears throat> and they turned to him and they said, so, you know, you're dying. And I, I'm a sitting across the room and I wanted the floor to open up. I just, it was the first time it had ever been spoken in front of me to him. So now he knows, I know, and I, I could, I, I was, paralyzed in the moment, which wasn't even about me. I just wanted to be a fly in the wall. I just so did not want to be there. Mm. It was, it was just, I didn't, I never let on to him, but I was, it was chilling, but it's why, the reality. Why do you think it's so hard for us to, to face into our loved ones dying process? Like I that? think, I, I think it's so hard because, you know, existentially, we, we have no idea where, when, where somebody's going to go. We all like to think they're in stars. And, you know, I, I see horses, you know, my dad was into horses. So, you know, when I see horses, I think of him. And so I think we try to hold on to things to hold on to the person because it's hard to conceptualize them. They're here and then they're not. Hi, everyone. Excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here. And I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesagrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. And, and, you know, and it's going to happen. And yet it's this taboo topic. We don't really talk about it when we're little. Okay. Don't talk about it. I mean, I remember having family dinners. My father was in his early eighties and he would crack jokes about it. And I couldn't even do that. He used to joke around, don't serve sale, you know, stale pastries when we're having a memorial. Okay. Cause that's the first thing on my mind. Don't put out a stale croissant because dad doesn't like the, you know, so he always had a sense of humor about it. And if it wasn't for that sense of humor, I don't know how I would have gotten through that because my family was really concerned. I was just going to turn into a pile of salt. I, I was a little concerned. Were you very close to him? Extremely. We were as thick as thieves. We were starting when I was little. Um, my older brother and sister had nice relationships with him as well. I just somehow got under his skin. He was stern. He could be stern. He was very funny. He was a very sharp dresser. He loved his clothes and he was a cowboy. He loved horses. So, and a very eclectic mix, you know, he was a really unique guy. That's one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story. I mean, it would not be unusual for the two of us to be sitting down bantering back and forth like a, 
a comedy routine. I mean, it, people would sit and like, I can't believe you just had that conversation with your father. Um, so we were close. And then as, as I got older and uh, I moved nearby my parents, I wanted my daughter to be raised around her grandparents. Um, we went to appointments together and dinners, family dinners and my daughter's recitals and things like that. And we were in each other's daily lives. You know, before I moved close by, I would call him. Uh, Hi, Dad. How you doing? I'm fine, Dina. How? What's new? Nothing. Same thing as yesterday. You just called me. There's nothing new. I'm watching my movie. I love you, but I'm getting off the phone. And basically, the living the joke was, I'm just calling to hear you breathe. And he would. He goes, You heard me breathe. I'm fine. We'll talk again soon. And I was okay with that. My friends would say. Aren't you insulted by that? Nope, not at all. That's so what I wanted. Done for small talk, it sounds like. No, not at all. About, I'm curious about the hospice workers coming in and saying, so you're dying to your father. Was he, did he talk about his dying or his death? Not for a moment, not for a moment, not to my mother, not to the family. He knew it. You knew he knew it. <clears throat> he was he kind of withdrew in, which is very typical. You learn, I don't know if you went through the hospice, did you go through hospice with your father through that process? We had um, community hospice workers come to the house just for the last two or three days. Right, for comfort and make sure, yeah. And so, medication. Yeah. And medication, right. And they, they, they oversee the care and comfort. And it's really interesting because they teach you an entire education. So they're coming to the house and you're learning terminology. So withdrawing is a very normal part of that process. Cognitively, visually, he, he just, you know, suddenly watching the news every day, not of interest, small talk, not of interest. And so there would be times you would be sitting there and he never said anything to me. The only thing, he said two things to me uh, before, while I was still able to go in, I would go in every day to see him when he was at this group home. I, I just never wanted him to feel alone for a moment. And one day I would sit on his bed because I did everything but crawl into his lap till I couldn't do it anymore because, you know, he was so frail. Um, he just said to me, he reached out and took my hand and said, take care of your mother. And he started crying and we both knew. And of course, and, and at one point he wanted me to get something special for one of the, the owners of the care home, because he had just taken such wonderful concierge care of my father down to his favorite potato chips and his complaints, frankly, you know, when he first got there, not the friendliest person, he complained a lot about stuff, but they, they worked it out. You know, hmm. you have to kind of mesh with the, your care team. So, yeah. So he, so he did acknowledge it in the take care of your mother and the tears. Um, but it's, it's curious, isn't it? What makes some people able to talk about dying and death? Yeah, and, and others can't. And in my experience, most people don't. Actually. Most people don't. It's most like if, don't. If, you, if you don't discuss it, it's not there. It's like if I don't think I have a cavity and I don't see a doctor, then I don't have a cavity. Well, you do have it. It is going to happen. And I find that and I've always said this, and even with my painting, there's joy to be found in darkness. I'm of the belief you have to push through right through the middle of the mire if you go around it, if you circumvent it, at some point you're going to come full circle and have to deal with it. And it's going to be even harder. So dealing with it when you have advanced notice, I find allows you to drink in even more. 
ask questions. Is there something that you wanted to know? Is there something you didn't say? I mean, the last thing you want is unrequited feelings or expressions that you never uh, shared. I mean, I happen to have always told my father I loved him 65,000 ways and he knew it. And I just, you know, when he didn't feel well, I was shopping for him. I got him the wrong clothes. That's okay. But he knew I was out there trying to do for him. And it gives you the opportunity to maximize all that you have with this person. Ideally, you don't wait till, you know, that ninth hour, but sometimes we do. Not everybody's got the best relationship in the world. So head on, you know. But I hear all the time from people is, I thought we had more time. So at some level, people know that their loved one is going to die, but somehow it's going to be tomorrow and tomorrow is never going to come. Right. Even when they know it, people can be really surprised and shocked. So when oh, your yes. brother died, and I know you said past, um, I, I say died and dead and trying and take the right. two out of those words. But when he died, was there anything that surprised you about his dying and his death? Yes, I, you know, it's always been a taboo subject for me because I'm so close to everybody that I love. So I couldn't even broach the subject. Fast forward, I am actually sitting in the room finding out that my father is gonna pass away in the next 24 hours. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, here I am. I'm, I am in the thick of it. And it's okay. It's okay. No, I don't want him to go, but I certainly don't want him in pain. This is no quality of life. If you remove yourself from the equation, which is what we have to do in order to allow those we love that are dying to go where they need to be, you have to pull yourself out of it. And they don't want to be in a state of where there's a lack of humility, dignity, a quality of life you know, can't do their activities of daily living, going, you know, into the restroom or showering. And, you know, there's all the eating, sitting up to eat, having a beverage, these little things. You know, I remember visiting my father with a milkshake. He struggled to get the paper that they put at the top of the straw. He couldn't get it off. And I never once reached out to help him because I knew if he wanted help, he would ask me. I didn't want to take that dignity away from him. And yet this is what we watch happen as they go through this process in hospice. And so when he was dying, I knew that hearing was the last, they told us hearing is the last sense to go. So I let him know, as my sister did, my mother did, we're here, it's okay. Do what you need to do. And I intentionally didn't talk too much because if they're hearing, they're bringing, you're pulling them back to the family that they don't want to leave at some level. I did not want to do that. I felt like that would be selfish. So I said it a few times and then I just pulled back and I was in the room with him hmm. and allowed him to go. And his eyes were open the entire time, gazing upward, hmm. uh, not typical, not atypical, but it's not, I mean, it was, it was unnerving. Uh, there was an evening I was in there with him by myself that I will never forget. Um, darkness came and, you know, it's nighttime and, you know, we're taking shifts and it was, it was frightening for me. I, I grabbed a shirt from his closet and I curled up on the couch and I stayed with him because you know what, it's my dad. And yes, it was frightening, but I, it's just what you do. What was frightening for you, Dina? Um, his appearance the changes that were taking place went from no changes to just 
just like the hospice pamphlet said, coloring, breathing, respiration, you know, they breathe and then it might be like 45 seconds be, before you see the chest rise and fall. And all these things that, you know, you, you think when going into this, it's going to be so morbid. It's not morbid. It's part of life. Death is part of life. And the fact that I could sit here and talk about it, if you had talked, spoken with me two years ago, nope, not going to happen. I'd have asked, I'd have taken the conversation to M&Ms and snacks and everything else in between, which I still do most of the time. But um, actually, on a funny note, because there was humor all the way through this process, my sister and I sat vigil, gave my mom a break. She was tired. And we always have food in our purse. We were starving, but we didn't want to eat in front of him. It was loud. So we, we stole away to the closet and we got out snacks and they were crunching. It was loud. And with the two of us stood there and giggled, giggled from stress relief, from sadness, from, from a moment of respite from the pain. And just at the complete nerve of us eating loud, which would have driven him nuts when he was sitting on the couch next to us. And all we could think of was going, what is going on in there? I'm trying to die people. And you're chewing so loud. It sounds like there's elephants in the room. And we had this nice moment and it, it was nice. Mm. And, but, you know, here you are, you have your, this person like who's like right on the brink of dying. And I'm chewing on Cheetos, you know, uh, 10 feet away with my sister, but it was okay. It's okay. It, death is very normal in so many ways. And I think we infuse it with this big holy moment or holy meaning. And, and in yes. some ways it is, and it also isn't, you know? Right, um, right. You know, often you can be there in the silence and somebody's dying and then you put on some chant or some song and they can wake up and say, turn off the bloody music, which you, yeah. you know. you're driving me crazy. <laughs> or, right? yeah. Like, you know, just because someone's dying, it doesn't mean they've suddenly become a saint overnight. Right. You know? Exactly right. Yeah, I'm knighting you. You're dying. Yes. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you said that because a couple weeks before he died, my dad was meticulous about his hair. Nobody touched his hair except my mother. He she cut it for him. But, you know, his hair was like in his face. And I was like, ah, you know what? I'll, I'll just reach out. He hadn't budged. He furrows his brownies, like shaking his head. I was like, oh, okay, message taken. So it's true. They're, they're, just because they can't move or speak doesn't mean they've lost their, you know, who they are. They're still Absolutely. not going to like that. So Absolutely. You yeah. mentioned there just the, the appearance as somebody's dying. And it's something we really don't talk about enough. And I remember saying, I don't know who I said it to, um, Maybe I said it on a podcast episode, but what what I had forgotten is how long it can take to die sometimes. Yes. My father was 10 days without drinking or eating before he died. Yeah. Um, we have some myths around that, that it's only two or three days we can survive. And that's actually not true. Not true. Um, yeah. And so much dying happens before death. So yes. the whole process of dying, exactly like you said, there can be huge change to the appearance of our loved one and um, a huge amount of weight loss yes. that happens before our eyes. Their color can change, the way they hold their mouth, the way they hold their face. Um, and I think when we're not prepared for that, it can be quite shocking. I'm, I'm thinking your, of your description on the sofa with your dad's shirt. Yes, it's frightening. Um, but it's really important just to tell people about that. It can, it can take a long time. 
Our loved one's appearance can change dramatically. They can look quite dead when they're not dead. When they're not, yes. For, and they hang on. For a while, yeah. Um, and I know certainly my dad seemed like a we call it the Duracell bunny. There used to be an ad for Duracell. Yes, bunny. I remember. The bunny just keeps going. And it was like there was no semblance of him anymore, but his heart was beating and his lungs were breathing. And it, it was literally like, you know, at one stage I Google pacemakers and <laughs> can a pacemaker keep going when somebody's dead? Because it was oh, like, that's interesting. he looks <clears throat> so dead, but his heart right. lungs were just going and going and going. Um, and that was for, you know, two or three days towards the end. But I think it's these things that can be quite disturbing to people because we're not prepared. You're you know? not. I mean, I, I think, and it's true, everything you said physiologically happens, I mean, to the letter. And hospice, if you have the, the blessing of working with hospice, it is truly an education. It's a master class on going through this period of time. My father did the same thing as yours, Liz. He held on where it was sort of like, okay, like, you know, you get these calls, okay, another day and hospitals to say, I don't know, he seems to be hanging on. There's no really semblance of the person that you know is the person, their essence, there's no, they're not exuding any energy, they're not really moving, you're not getting in anything interactive, you know, you're not getting a squeeze back from the hand. It's simply uh, a vessel, if you will, they're, they're, physiology is just maintaining itself at that point. It's like a car that's just going to, you know, and so yes. you're watching it wind down, but you know, nobody's going to tell you where you're going to stall on the highway. So you just sort of coast. Right. And, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if you noticed with your dad, it was nothing, everything was kind of subtle. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, things are changing. It just goes to a next phase. And I remember them coming in and checking his respiration and saying, okay, it's very low. It was like in the seventies, when it gets this point, it's usually fairly soon. Okay. So now you go through this phase where, you know, he's dying, but no, okay. Now he's really dying before it was like, okay, it's going to happen. I've got a few more days to not go into panic mode. Now it's imminent. Okay. Now I'm like, you're waiting. I mean, it's, it's, it's his vigil. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so true. You don't know, is this going to be three days? Is this going to be a week? Is this going to be 10 days? It's very hard, but it's really interesting the way you did that motor, do, 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 you know, that was exactly like dad. It was like a very, very slow. Slow, yes. And, you know, I found myself wondering, at what point did he leave? At what point is his spirit gone? Is his soul gone? That's because interesting. I don't feel like it was a, it's like there was a mechanical process happening, but where is he? Right, completely devoid of the person. It's that, mechanics that are yeah, taking place. two or systems. three days ago when he last squeezed me or yes. I had a little bit of a smile when I cracked a joke. And, you know, it's interesting how people deal with it because you talk there about being in the cupboard eating crisps and being reverent. Like we we were all quite irreverent because my father was very irreverent. So were you we, know? yes. So we we stood around and you know talked about people and memories and made jokes and you know nice. we made jokes as soon as he had died as well because that was just he would have been the one in the room cracking a joke you know exactly my um, father too yeah so it's it's really and wasn't that liberating for you to be able to do that 
it turns it into a different experience altogether. I mean, I, my father has always had a sense of humor about stuff, life, death, disease, whatever. He's like, you know what? It is what it is. What am I going to do? And he'd always refer to, as long as I'm on the other side of the grass, well, the, the, when people get to the, the uh, incoming one-liners chapter, the first time I went to visit him <clears throat> at the cemetery, in, in, we're Jewish. So in the Jewish tradition, you don't get a stone. They do a stone setting a year following the passing. So I go out there and there's this teeny little index card, look like something from a kindergarten class in his name. And, and all I could think of was this incoming one-liner dad comment. Oh, that's nice. So I made it to 85 and all they could do was put down an index card. Like, is anybody going to find me unless a bird goes to the bathroom on this thing and leaves a trail? And I started laughing and I was like, you know what? That is the greatest gift because it happens to me all the time. You know, the next time I went up and I heard, I heard in my head another dad comment, I'm thinking, you know, what do you say? That This is another part of grief. What do you say when you go visit your loved one? You know, not if they're cremated, but so much if they have a plot. Do you talk? Do you stand there? Are you eating? Or are you putting a stone down? And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just talk to him. I'm always chatty before. Why stop now? Hi, dad. And I'm thinking, am I going to ask him how he's doing? Because he's going to say, oh, I'm doing great. We're having a party back here. It's it's cold, you know. And so it's it's okay. I've, I've figured out a way to make it okay. And I I think it's so important to have humor through the grief process because it's giving yourself permission to laugh. Like you said, you guys were in there sharing stories and laughing. And if they're irreverent in life, why not carry that? Because it's been the best coping tool of all. I mean, mm. you know, we had humor together when we were living and, and I fully plan on, you know, carrying that torch. Very good. As is the rest of the family is already doing. Dina, is there anything about your grief that surprised you after your father died? Um, a few things. One that I was actually able to handle his passing. Um, obviously not that much. I'm still calling it passing, not dying. So check in with me in another six months. Um, but the what fact that I can sing, what is it about saying the word his death? That's difficult. Um, I think probably it just takes me back to being in the room with them when it happened. Um, what, what I, what I didn't share with you yet that is, when my sister and I were in there and they came in and took the respiration, it was very low. And they said, okay, it could be any time. <clears throat> and we were sitting on the couch across from him and my back was turned away from him. I was facing my sister and we, for a moment, we were just being normal and just talking. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, my whole body started shuddering. It was the oddest thing. I mean, it was just, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, something's happening. And my sister's like, no, no, it's fine. I'm like, no, 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 no. And I'm literally like my body's tremoring and we turn, no respiration, but this had happened before. And then you'd see his chest rise and we waited and waited. Okay, now it's a minute. Now she's like, yeah, no, he's gone. I'm like, oh my God, shuddering stopped. Now I was not facing my father when that happened. I think two things happened in that moment. Number one, he did not want me to see him go. He was a private guy. So if I'm leaving, I'm taking off. Nobody needs to see it. The door is open. Let's just get it over with. So there was that. And I just felt his energy pass through me. And I just, I always feel a little bit in, I feel a little bit, a little bit of it in there. That's not coming out right, but you know what I mean? I feel, I feel that energy in there. And, um, 
Yeah, it was the most startling thing, even though we knew it was going to happen. And it was, he didn't look that much different because it was a matter of an hour or two. And then suddenly, five minutes after it happened, you start to see more changes. I left because I just, I did not want to kiss him goodbye. I, I didn't want to remember him like that. I didn't know what to do, actually. It was really kind of unnerving. I'm like, uh, okay, uh, well, okay, but I just went up and said goodbye. I, I didn't, I didn't want to kiss him. I didn't want to remember the temperature of his skin. I didn't want to remember feeling bones. I wanted to remember the warm cheek that I kissed a few weeks before that was responsive to me. And, and that was okay. I have no regrets about that. Hmm. But and it's so personal as well, isn't it? It's very personal. Yeah. Everybody will have their own experience and make their own choices. And none of them are right or wrong. There's no judgment. It's whatever works for you. Yeah. Absolutely. So to come full circle, to answer your question, the most surprising thing about my grief is that I could experience his death, his physical dying, and I'm here to talk about it. And it's okay. I've talked about it with my daughter. I've talked about it with friends. I didn't really talk about it at the beginning because I kind of process things on my own. Um, I didn't feel the loss, the physical loss, till. Um, after the book had come out, I didn't realize that I basically had coped my way through a book, but it was very inexpensive therapy. Well, maybe not so inexpensive, but it was therapeutic, but I didn't really start feeling everything till I kind of got that out. Mm, it's a um, really good point, Dina, because there's a lot of myths about grief and there's a lot of myths about how we are when someone we love dies. And most of us are okay. Most of us cope when I say most of us research says that you know we all need information and right. support and um you know kindness from family and friends and community and then about 60 percent of us will be okay with that right <laughs> but just that you know I know most of us will be okay and we will integrate our grief and our grief won't be a brutal experience and um this is a really important message to get out there because often the only people who are out there advocating for the bereaved or those who are grieving right. are people who've had a really difficult bereavement experience. Um, you know, perhaps the death has been sudden or tragic or unexpected, right. untimely, um, you know, and, and in those circumstances, grief can be very difficult. But, I, you know, that's something that surprised me as well because... I was very, very close to my father. He was my, the most important figure in my life in many ways. And I really integrated his loss um, very easily. And I think because it was anticipated, um, I was prepared for it. Like you, I was at his death. I was by his side. I had no regrets. And, you know, he wasn't going to go anywhere else at 92 you're right. not going to up and do a, a world trip or something. So it's you stop wishing for time or miracles or cures, and you begin to wish for a good death, a gentle death, a peaceful death. And then specifically during COVID times, you you want to be with them. And then that's that's almost enough. If I can be there, um, right. you know, the, the list of expectations certainly shrank during the pandemic. And just to be by their side was was all we would wish for. Yeah, I mean, just the simplest things, just to be by their side. I mean, during COVID, even the funeral, 
we were scaled down to just five or six of us yeah. and six feet apart and masks and all the rituals that are associated with death change. How many people can visit? How long you can visit for? Can you visit? You know, during COVID, a lot of people are isolated. So you don't have that. But yeah, I think it's kind of like pregnancy. The people that talk about pregnancy sometimes are the people that have these awful traumatic experiences and it becomes somehow like the norm in this horrible event, um, much like death. It's not always this tragic, horrible thing. You do somehow incorporate it into your life. I mean, look, you're, you do this amazing podcast that, that inspires, that educates, that reaches out to people, that gives them permission to feel how they feel and let them know that they'll be okay. And I think integrating loss is integrating the, continuing to integrate the person into your life just in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's moving forward with them as opposed to moving on or leaving them behind. How do we integrate them and move forward with them with this different relationship? Right. Tell us uh, about your book, What is Okay Little Bird? So Okay Little Bird is a memoir about my life with my father. It starts off very young. You learn a brief history about the family dynamics. My brother and sister would tell you it was, this, was as if I was raised in a different house because I would get away with things probably because I was the youngest, but he was very strict. He was, you know, raised very proper. And so um, he had ideas about things, whether it was how you dressed, how you spoke, how you sat at the dinner table. I still sometimes forget to put my napkin in my lap. Sorry, dad. Um, and there was these things that you did and did not do and you towed the line. I sort of pushed the envelope with him. And the more I pushed, the more he would laugh. And the more I saw this softer side and I kept pushing and pushing. And I think that not being intimidated by gruff, irritable, stern exterior uh, allowed me to get to the softer side, which opened up this whole amazing rapport that we had all the way through, you know, every age of my life in my twenties. And, you know, he wrote me letters in college. He, you know, the book takes you through voicemails, cantankerous family dinners, um, shopping excursions in which I went when he was sick and he was at home, he was cold. I went to go buy him a jacket but the jacket had to look right because if visitors came, he didn't want to look askew. So, it, and I came home with this jacket that I had no idea was the, from the women's department. Well, that was the end of that. I don't want to spoil the rest of that chapter, but these were the things we did. And it was just like back and forth. And somebody said to me recently, I had an interview and they said, you know, your father would say things to you and most people would be insulted. He was a little bit sassy or whatever, but you somehow never took it personally. I, I never did. I just saw this guy that was a really great guy. He was funny, he was smart, he was handsome and dapper. And I was able to connect with him. And then he would never let people see his vulnerable side. I mean, he'd wear black glasses at family events and things like that. And one day I had to take him for a, a diagnostic exam at the doctor and he had to have his shirt off for leads or whatever. I think it was a heart exam. I had to help him to put his shirt back on. He was so embarrassed. He said, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. He put his head down. I, I can't believe I look like this. I said, it's okay, dad. He said, would you mind helping me on with my shirt? And I said, no, it's okay. He, he allowed me into those vulnerable moments that are all part of the beginning of that end. You know, his body's changing, he's frail. And so the book documents that. So all the way through, and it's, it's bouncy. It's you'll laugh and you'll cry. And 
Um, but in the end, you'll be inspired because like you said, the grief just becomes part of your world. It's just the new normal and everything is okay. Beautiful, so. Dina. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, people can buy the book on bookbaby.com. It's called OK Little Bird. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Great conversation. Thank you so much, Dina Goldstein. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleason, take really good care. She has come down to condemn